On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Ephesians chapter 4, I'll be reading verses 11 through 16. If you'll follow along now, beginning in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, where the apostle writes, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, we're in the practical section of Ephesians, where we've been looking at Paul's first exhortation in verse 3 to eagerly uh, put forth an intense effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And and there in verses 4 to 6, Paul laid out the basis of our unity. In verses 7 to 10, we move from Paul's emphasis on unity to diversity. Within this unity, a diversity of gifts that contributes to the overall unity and growth of the body. And in his infinite wisdom, Christ has given each and every believer a spiritual gift, along with the enabling grace, to use it in serving him for the common good, for the benefit of others, and for the building up of the body of Christ for the glory of God. And then last week, we began looking at verses 11 to 16, spending our time in verse 11, where Paul speaks of Christ not giving gifts to people, but rather of giving gifted men to the body of Christ. And he said in verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. The resurrected, ascended Christ has especially gifted certain individuals with what we might call foundational gifts, gifts which are necessary and essential for all other gifts and ministries. And he gives these gifted men to the body of Christ to establish churches, to minister the word of God, and to equip others for service in the church. And as we learned last week, first he gave the apostles and the prophets, speaking of New Testament prophets. And these two offices uh, and their function were temporary. They were for the once for all founding of the church. And then those two offices passed from the scene. But the Lord Jesus Christ made ongoing provision for the ministry of his word by giving two more permanent offices to the church, namely that of the evangelists and the pastor teachers. Evangelists are uniquely gifted men to the church to communicate the gospel uh, in order to reach the lost. So they are those who take the gospel to new places like our missionaries today, but it would also include those called and gifted by God to itinerant ministries directed mainly toward proclaiming the gospel to the unbelieving world around us here at home. And Christ also gave to his church the shepherds and teachers. And it refers, as we learn, to to a single gift so that we could speak of it as the gift of shepherd-teacher or pastor-teacher. And a true pastor-shepherd or pastor-teacher has a heart for the sheep to tend and watch, to protect and care for, to lead and, and feed the flock of Christ. And his primary task is to give himself to prayer and the ministry of the word of God. And that's what pastors are supposed to do. They're to teach the Word of God to the people of God. But the Lord Jesus doesn't give evangelists and pastors, teachers to the churches or to the church 
to do all the work of the ministry for the members of the body while they passively sit back and merely receive. As I said last week, one of the most crippling ideas to pervade the church over the centuries is that there is a special class of Christians called clergy who do almost everything in the local church while many just attend the services and do nothing else but sit back and let them do it. And as a result, one commentator said, the church is too much like a football game. 50,000 people in the stands, desperately in need of exercise, watching 22 people on the field, desperately in need of rest. (laughs) I mean, certainly the Bible speaks of paid ministers who are expected to lead, preach, and teach. But the overall purpose of the ministry of the Word and the life of the church is to prepare and equip believers to actively serve in the ways that Christ has gifted them. Because when each believer finds his or her place of service and does his or her part, well, then the whole body grows and matures, as we'll see today. And in our text, the Apostle Paul is saying, Christ gives to the church those with specific gifts to equip the saints for the work of service so that the body will grow to unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness. And that's really verses 11 to 16. God's purpose is to bring his church to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And now in verses 12 to 16, Paul explains why the risen Christ gave these leaders to his church. Notice verse 12. The overall purpose of the ministry of the word in the life of church is, notice verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Pastor teachers are to equip the saints. And when Paul speaks of saints or, or the holy ones, which is what it means, he's not speaking of a special class of super spiritual elite Christians. No, this is a term used in Scripture for all believers. Saints are you and I. I mean, all of you, along with every other person in the world who has come to faith in Christ alone for salvation, we're all saints. And when you become a believer in Christ, you become a saint. And Paul says here that it is the task of pastor teachers to equip the saints. Now this word equip refers to that which is fit, which is restored to its original condition or is made complete. And the word has the idea of making somewhat adequate or sufficient for something or some purpose. And it's used in Matthew 4.21 where James and John are mending their nets, you know, repairing them to make them fit for service. In classical Greek, the word was used in medicine for the setting of broken bones and and restoring dislocated limbs. It was also used of, of furnishing a guest room to get it ready for guests. And so it's the idea of making fit, restoring, completing, you know, preparing and equipping. And how do the gifted men God has given to the church equip the saints? You know, what do they they equip the saints with? One answer, right? The word of God. They preach the word in season and out of season. As Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that is why following those two verses, Paul then charged Timothy to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's what a pastor's job is. Preaching the word of God to make fit and to prepare and to equip the saints. And so the risen Christ gave gifted men to the church for the purpose of equipping the saints, and this is done through the preaching and teaching of God's word. And we do this uh, here at Calvary Bible, primarily through the preaching of the Word on Sunday mornings, through the, dis- through the discussion of the sermons and the various home fellowships, and through our men's and women's ministries. And we also seek to equip the saints through one-on-one contact, whether in discipling or over a cup of coffee or over a meal. And so the task of pastors and church leaders is, is to equip the saints. And what are they equipping them for? We'll look back at the verse. For the work of ministry. For the work of ministry. And first it needs to be pointed out that the text does not say 
It does not say for the work of the ministry. It's not talking about the ordained ministry. But about the work of ministry. And there is a distinct difference. The word work means duty. I mean work that a person is, is obliged to perform for moral or legal reasons. And it describes an, an ongoing activity. And this word ministry, the work of ministry means service. It means to render assistance or help by performing certain duties, often of a, of a humble or menial nature. So it means to serve, to, to render service, to help. The word simply means service. And it refers to the spiritual service of all believers, uh, all kinds of service, and, and believers use their spiritual gift to do that service. And so the goal of pastor-teachers is to equip all believers, enabling them to do the work of service in the church. Because it's not the pastors and elders who have the most direct responsibility to do all the work of service. Because no pastor or a group of pastors and elders can do everything a church needs to do and have done. And I don't care how gifted and dedicated a pastor may be, the work that needs to be done in the church will always far exceed his time and his ability. And so his purpose in God's plan is not to try to meet all those needs himself, but to equip the people under his care to meet those needs. And we see this emphasized again down in verse 16. As one man said, obviously the leaders share in serving, and some in the congregation share in equipping. But God's basic design for the church is for the equipping to be done so that the saints can serve each other effectively. The entire church is to be aggressively involved in the work of the Lord. You know, Paul wrote to the, uh, the Corinthians saying, in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Spiritual service is the work of every Christian, every saint of God. We, we are always to be abounding in the work of the Lord. And loved ones, mere attendance is in absolutely no way a substitute for participating in serving. And there is often the feeling in the church that the paid staff, you know, the professionals, should do the work of ministry and the members should be served by them. And so often when believers go to church, they, they go to be ministered to, not to minister. They go in order to be blessed, not in order to be a blessing. And they leave not asking whether Christ was exalted and whether others were ministered to and edified, but whether or not they were blessed. Because they think that it's all about them. But Paul... And really, God's vision for the church is much different. Leaders equip the church to carry out the work of service effectively so that the church can function properly. And we all have a work of service because we've all been given a spiritual gift or gifts by the Lord Jesus so that we may contribute something to the body of Christ so that we may fulfill our mission to the church and through it. Our text tells us that Christ gives leaders who equip the saints, and it is the saints who do the work of service and not merely the leaders. As one man said, Paul is not comparing the church to a train where all the passengers sit comfortably and, and passively until they arrive at their destination, brought there by the giftedness of their spiritual leaders. Rather, he is likening the church to an orchestra where all the members play their part and contribute to the melodic symphony of service to God. And so the work of ministry, of serving, is not just for a select few who are paid uh, to work by and for everyone else. The mark of a healthy church is one in which every member is aware of the grace of God upon their lives and is actively using their spiritual gifts or gift to, to serve their Lord by serving one another. And next Paul adds that the goal of the saints being equipped for service, notice, is for the building up of the body of Christ. 
All that's been said in verse 11 and the first two phrases of verse 12 is directed towards the goal of building up the body of Christ. So that together the gifted men of verse 11 and the saints serve this divinely appointed goal. And Christ doesn't want us to spend his gifts upon ourselves nor let them lie dormant. We're to use them to build up the body of Christ. And the Greek word translated building up speaks of the act of bringing something closer to fullness or completion. It's understood as if, uh, you know, assisting in the construction of an incomplete building. And it, it literally refers to the building of a house. And it was used figuratively of any sort of construction. And Paul is using it here figuratively of of building up the church, referring to the spiritual edification and strengthening of the church. And because building up refers figuratively to the spiritual strengthening of the church, and also because of the following context of spiritual maturity, this term building up is best understood primarily as growth in maturity. You know, building in maturity and not growth in numbers. And so the ultimate goal of Christ gifting the church with leaders is for his body, the church, to become spiritually mature. For clearly, one man said, for clearly the way the whole body grows is for all its members to use their God-given gifts. These gifts are so beneficial both to those who exercise their ministry faithfully and to those who receive it that the church becomes steadily more healthy and more mature. And so if you want to build a strong church, it's not through pragmatism. It's not through programs or, or entertainment or, or the gimmicks and, and the schemes of man. I mean, this is God's plan for building a strong church. You have gifted men preaching and teaching the word of God, equipping and preparing the saints for the work of service, and they do the work by using their spiritual gifts and applying all the one another's in the New Testament, and in the process, they're building each other up, and as a result, the whole body of Christ grows. It is spiritually strengthened, the body is built up, it matures and becomes more like Christ. And guess what? When members aren't using their gifts, when they are those who just come week after week and sit and do nothing but receive and take and and don't serve, that hurts the entire body. The body suffers for that. Sure, the body is going to limp along, but it's not going to be as healthy and strong and mature as it would be if every member was doing their part for the building up and the strengthening of the church. And so a person's disobedience in this area really affects the entire church. But all, all, all ministry, all this ministry begins with the teaching of God's word by faithful pastors. And the priority Paul puts on the teaching of God, God's word means simply this, that whatever your spiritual gift is, your usefulness to Christ starts with learning the Bible. And the Lord Jesus has provided the teaching of the Bible in the church through its pastors, uh, and to grow, that means you have to regularly uh, be regular and serious in your attendance to hear the preaching of God's Word, and then being equipped by God's Word, you're to actively engage in the work of service, which means being willing to, to do whatever needs to be done. It means having a servant's heart like our Lord Jesus and and being willing to do whatever needs to be done, even the most menial tasks. See, Christ has given you a, a spiritual gift. And you're to use it in service to others. Because spiritual gifts are not given to us for our own benefit. Rather, they are given for the building up of the body of Christ. You see, the focus here is not on the individual, but on the contribution which each individual makes to the corporate body of Christ by exercising their individual gifts for the benefit of the whole body. One man said this. He said, I find that the truly unhappy people are those who are unwilling to trust God and who do little for other people because they think only about themselves. 
The really happy people are those who serve God and others because as they do, the Spirit of God flows through them as a spring of living water. I think that what is most exciting about ministry, he said, is to know that God is using you for things of eternal significance and even to build up the body in which God himself will come to live forever. What, he said, could be better than that. So the question is, what are you doing with the gift or gifts that God has given you? I mean, every member should grow up and, and use a towel and not wear a bib. They shouldn't be immature consumers, but rather eager servants. And this is how one man put it. He said, your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It is bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively changing them into his likeness, and he wants you to be a part of it. I mean, what could be better than that? I mean, there is nothing greater to do with your life than to spend it for the glory of our Redeemer King and the advancement of His kingdom. And so the building up, that is, the, the spiritual strengthening and, and the maturing of the body of Christ is brought about as you and I, as gospel-transformed men and women, use our spiritual gifts in the work of service, you know, in ministering to others. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And all of this is directed toward a specific goal, which Paul now gives us in verse 13. And what is the goal? Well, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So grammatically, there are three phrases in verse 13, each beginning with the word to. So until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, that's one phrase. Until we all attain to mature manhood, that's the second phrase. And until we all attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that's the third phrase. But you'll notice Paul begins with the word until. Until. And the word until indicates that the, the process described in, chapter, in verse 12 must continue until a certain end is achieved. And so the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, must continue, Paul says, until we. Until we all. And this applies to every single believer. But again, Paul is thinking of the church corporately. Christ is the head and the church is his body. And so the process described in verse 12 must continue until we all, that is the church, which is Christ's body, corporately attains. And the word attain is used nine times in the book of Acts to refer to travelers arriving at their destination. And thus, each of these three phrases involves a process that results in a goal. The attaining of unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness. And while the goal will not be perfectly attained until Christ returns, it is something that we are aiming at and working toward by the grace and strength which he supplies. And so gifted men are to continue to teach and preach the word of God, equipping the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ, until all the church attains, first of all, looking back at verse 13, until all the church attains to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So here Paul speaks of the unity of the faith. As in verse 5 of this chapter, the faith does not refer to the subjective act or experience of believing, but rather to the objective content of what is believed. In other words, the essential truths of the Christian faith centered on the gospel. And so Paul is referring here to doctrinal unity. 
Earlier in chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul spoke about the unity of the Spirit as a given, as something that already exists by virtue of the new birth. It's something the church has and must put forth intense effort to maintain. But here, Paul refers to the unity of the faith as something that doesn't yet exist, but is something to be attained. But if unity already exists as a gift, how can it be attained as a goal? Well, just as unity needs to be maintained visibly, it also needs to be attained fully. When we start off in the Christian life, we are one with other believers by virtue of being born again. That is the unity of the Spirit. But we don't have that that oneness, that unity with others doctrinally. We can't. Why? Well, because generally speaking, most people don't know anything when they first come to faith in Christ. Right? I mean, all we know is that Jesus saved us. And we don't know the ins and outs and and all of the, the theological nuances of that. The unity of the faith, doctrinal unity, comes about through the teaching of the Word of God as we begin to learn and, and understand sound doctrine. As we begin to learn and understand the the theological truths behind all these things. And the more we learn, the more we grow in our understanding of the great doctrinal truths of God's Word, the more we grow in the unity of the faith with one another. So by unity of the faith, Paul means attaining an understanding of sound doctrine. And this is so vitally important because there can never be unity in the church apart from doctrinal integrity. The unity of the faith, you know, unity around the truth. I mean, true unity is based on truth. There must be sound doctrine. And of course, this is absolutely contrary to conventional wisdom, which says that the way to cultivate unity is to absolutely avoid doctrine because doctrine divides. But that's not what Paul taught. In fact, he teaches just the opposite. The only unity he knows is in the faith. Doctrinal unity. I mean, yes, doctrine divides. It most certainly does. It divides truth from error, light from darkness, the sheep from the goats. But doctrine also unites. One man writes, Disunity in the church comes from doctrinal ignorance and spiritual immaturity. When believers are properly taught, and when the body is thereby built up in spiritual maturity, unity of the faith is an inevitable result. Oneness in fellowship is impossible unless it is built on the foundation of commonly believed truth. And so we're to attain to the unity of of the faith, that that body of essential truths shared by all true believers. However, it would be foolish and, and maybe even cultish to expect every believer in a church to agree on every minor point of doctrine. But there are basic doctrinal truths of the Christian faith that all believers must believe and and agree upon, regardless of denomination. And these would include major doctrinal issues like uh, the biblical historical account of creation and the fall of man, the Trinity, the full deity and full humanity of Christ, the virgin birth, the substitutionary atoning death of Christ to pay for our sins, the miraculous bodily resurrection of Christ, the promise of his future return, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, and other similar non-negotiable essential truths. So we should always strive to maintain the unity of the faith, you know, doctrinal unity. But at the same time, we should be promoting tolerance when it comes to non-essentials, meaning issues non-essential to salvation. That does not mean that these issues are unimportant, because they are. But they are issues on which godly men can agree to disagree. And these would be things such as the age and and mode of baptism, church polity, eschatology, 
the spiritual gifts, etc., etc. And there's a phrase, there's a phrase from a tract on Christian unity written in 1627 that really strikes the, the right balance, the balance that we're speaking of here. And here's that phrase. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity or love. In the essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. That's the, that's the right balance. So we're to attain the unity of the faith, but the faith doesn't stop with having a knowledge of sound doctrine. It includes, as Paul says, the knowledge of the Son of God. And the Greek word here for knowledge is a particularly strong one. It speaks of a full, accurate, and true knowledge. But Paul is not speaking about a mere academic knowledge of Christ and and the ability to address various doctrines about Christ, although that is important. Rather, what he is speaking about here is knowing the Son of God in an intimate, personal way. He is talking about the deep, personal knowledge that comes from a relationship with Christ and from walking with Christ. It's what Paul refers to in Philippians 3 where he writes that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It's the knowing which Jesus spoke of when he said my sheep hear my voice and I know them. He wasn't speaking about knowing their identities but rather of knowing them intimately. And that's the way he wants his people to know him. It's the knowing Jesus spoke of when he prayed, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. One commentator explained this as knowledge that goes beyond what can be packed into the head, knowledge that also trickles down into the heart and flows out into the life and obedient and loving service to the Lord. The best synonym for what Paul means by knowledge is love. To know Christ is to love him because of his great love for us, and we grow through our love for Christ and as his love flows through us. And so this true knowledge that Paul is speaking of touches not only the head but also the heart. And it will result in a life of devotion and dedication. You know, back in chapter 1, verse 17 of Ephesians, Paul prayed that the Ephesians would have that knowledge of him. And as God's word is proclaimed, and as God's people serve one another for the building of the body of Christ, there will be a growing and deepening knowledge of the Savior. And as we come to know Christ more deeply, we're going to to experience a closer unity in Christ, which is Paul's point here. But this is a, a lifelong process that's not going to be complete until we see the Lord face to face. And then, as one old saint said, throughout eternity, the church will be endlessly exploring the immensities and the infinities of the knowledge of the Son of God. Attaining to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God is is not something believers and churches can pursue, you know, as an optional extra. Well, let's see if we can work that into the program this year. No, this is not something you pursue as an optional extra. Rather, according to Paul in our text, helping believers know him both factually and relationally, both theologically and intimately, is a goal of the preaching and teaching ministries of the church. Yet how many churches today give their best energy and efforts to cultivating the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God through the preaching of God's Word? We're not talking about a superficial knowledge either, but this deep personal knowledge that comes from walking with Christ, which Paul speaks of here. 
But sadly, you can be in a church that is doing that. And yet it's possible, you know, to be orthodox in our beliefs and yet live disunited from other believers who were ignorant, one man said, of the rich experiential knowledge of the all-glorious, all-lovely mediator and savior, Jesus Christ. So there are churches that are doing this today, and yet there can still be people in that church who may be orthodox in what they believe intellectually, but they're living uh, completely disunited from other believers because it's not a reality in their lives. And so gifted men are to continue to teach and preach the word of God, equipping the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ, until all the church attains, first of all, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And secondly, Paul says, to mature manhood. To mature manhood. Now some interpret this as individual believers growing into maturity in Christ, which is certainly a New Testament concept. But again, the context demands that we understand it corporately as the church, which is represented as a single organism, the body of Christ. And Paul has already, in Ephesians, referred to the church as the one new man. The one new man which Christ created in himself. And here Paul says the church, this one new man, is to attain mature manhood. To mature manhood. The word manhood refers to an adult male or a full-grown man. And the word mature is is sometimes translated as perfect. Uh, The Greek word means the end or completion. And the idea is that we should aim to come to the completion of the process begun in our salvation. We should become spiritual adults, as it were. The word focuses on the mature spiritual adult in contrast to spiritual children in verse 14 who are immature and unstable and like a storm-tossed boat, they're blown in every direction by the winds of false teaching. So having begun with an emphasis on unity, Paul now includes this goal of, of spiritual maturity. And the goal of of becoming mature or perfect is reminiscent of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In his hymn of praise at the beginning of of Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul wrote that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And that's really just a reiteration of the same goal, only in different terms. Paul wants all believers to be growing and progressing toward Christian maturity. And the church is called to pursue this goal relentlessly, and it is the responsibility of the gifted leaders of the church to do all that they can do to to facilitate this growth to maturity. I mean, we want every Christian to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that they may be mature and complete. Why? Well, because the church as a whole grows and comes to maturity as its individual members grow and mature. And we move toward maturity by feeding upon God's Word as we consistently sit under the faithful preaching of the Word and as we prayerfully read and study the Word of God on our own and and then apply what we learn, we, we actually then put it into practice. We put into practice what we learn by the grace and strength which God supplies. We, we become doers of the Word and not hearers only, uh, deceiving ourselves. You see, the goal of every ministry should be the maturity, not only of individual believers, but the maturity of the church as a whole, which is Paul's point here. God's chief purpose for the church is that it might become mature, and that each of its members might contribute to that maturity by becoming spiritual adults, by growing up, growing up in their faith. Gifted men are to continue to teach and preach the word of God, equipping the saints for the work of service, 
for the building up of the body of Christ until all the church attains to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. And thirdly, Paul says, until we all attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What's he talking about here? What does this mean? Well, Paul's calling for the church to attain Christ-likeness. This word stature may refer either to age or physical stature, one's height. But but Paul is, is, is not speaking of physical height here, but rather of the moral and spiritual stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ's fullness is an expression of completion or perfection. And the New Living Translation really gives the sense of the verse. It reads, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So Paul is telling us that the goal for the church is to be fully conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this makes obvious sense. I mean, Paul is thinking of the church corporately, and Christ is the head, and the church, which is his body, is to grow to complete Christ-likeness. The ultimate goal is for us to be like Jesus. Because he is the perfect embodiment of the mature man, the perfect man. And God's predestined purpose is to conform each of His children and all of us together into the likeness of His Son so that when the world looks at us, it gets a glimpse of the Savior. I mean, this is the New Testament's teaching about our lives as individual Christians and and together as a church. And in Romans 8.29, Paul says that we are to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so Paul is, is, is saying simply this. God's purpose in establishing the ministry of his word in the life of his church is that every believer without exception would come to be like his Son. That's the goal. But what does that mean? What does that mean? And what does that even look like? Well, the Gospels show us the life and character of Jesus, right? And Jesus was morally pure. Relationally, Jesus showed sacrificial love. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And we're to be just like that. Spiritually, Jesus delighted in prayer. He loved God's word. I mean, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was obedient to God the Father, and he told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, we are increasingly to be like that. Both individually and as a church corporately. And the fruit of the Spirit is a depiction of Jesus' character. The Sermon on the Mount, and especially its opening section called the Beatitudes, describes what Jesus was like and provides the Bible's vision for us. So loved ones, that's the, that's the goal. That's the goal. To be like Jesus. To be like Jesus morally, spiritually, in our, in our relationship with others, and especially in our relationship to our Heavenly Father. That's the goal. So the question is, do believers ever attain to this measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ in this life? Well, according to some, they do. But the Bible's answer is no. 
The passage itself doesn't teach this. And Paul himself would be one of the first to acknowledge this. In fact, he said concerning himself in Romans 7.14, I am of the flesh. In other words, I'm carnal, sold under sin. This was Paul writing as, a, as, a, uh, as, a, as an apostle. He wasn't writing about his past either. I mean, Paul certainly did not consider himself to have arrived. And he wrote in Philippians 3, 12 to 14, not that I have already obtained, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. Paul says, I, I haven't got there. I'm not perfect. I'm not there. But he said, I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that, that I have made it on my have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus is the prize. Paul says, Look, I haven't attained. I'm not there. I'm not perfect. But man, I'm pushing on. I'm pushing forward. I'm straining forward. That means using every muscle, all of his might, straining forward that he might uh, win the prize. The Apostle John wrote, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Loved ones, it's not until after death that a Christian is fully uh, complete and perfected in glory. In fact, the Apostle John said in 1 John 3, 2, What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. But even though we'll never be perfect in this life, every Christian is in a lifelong process of growth and holiness called sanctification. When we're born again through faith in Christ, we begin as spiritual babes and, and we need to grow up and, and through the process of sanctification, we do. We grow and, and we mature. We, we don't remain spiritual babes. I mean, we don't all grow at the same pace, but we should all be growing. We should all be moving forward, making progress in Christ's likeness. And so a and so a degree, in fact, a high degree of maturity in Christ's likeness can be attained even here. As one man said, the more wholeheartedly believers strive to promote growth in Christ's likeness by rendering humble and wholehearted service to one another and to the kingdom in general, the more also the ideal will be realized. Nevertheless, full spiritual maturity, one that in the highest degree attains to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ cannot be realized this side of death. So we're never going to be perfect, never going to attain the fullness of that in this life. But we should always be moving forward. We should always be making progress. You see, in the Christian life, there's no standing still. There's no remaining static. We're either moving forward or we're moving backward. There's no standing still. And our calling is to press on to maturity and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see, God isn't satisfied that you simply go to church. And quite honestly, more and more people in churches across the country, even including ours, find it hard to make it to church. I mean, God is, but God isn't satisfied that, that we simply go to church. 
He demands that we be conformed to the image of His dear Son. He demands that collectively the whole church is Christ-like. That's the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what maturity looks like in the church. It looks like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should be showing the world Christ. When the world looks at us, again, it should get a glimpse of the Savior. But sadly, that's not what the world sees from most churches. But that's what the Lord requires of us. And again, it's a long-term process. Long-term. It's a marathon, not a sprint. But as we remain faithful and consistent in proclaiming the Word of God, the Spirit of God will work through the Word of God in the lives of the people of God, equipping them for service. And as they exercise their gifts for the building up of the body of Christ, There will be a growing and deepening unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Savior and the church will grow in depth and maturity and begin to look like Christ, begin to think like Him and to act like Him and that's when it becomes a power, the church becomes a powerful witness to the world. And that's the goal, isn't it? That's the goal. That the church would grow in unity, maturity and Christ-likeness in order that we might reflect the radiance of His glory in a dark and dying world. That's the goal. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org, calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love.